All right, well, welcome back to week two of our study in James. Uh, last week, we began our journey with a look at our call to rejoice and to be steadfast when we are slammed with trials of various sorts. And why is that? Because we can be confident of God's purpose in our trials. And if we lack the wisdom to see him at work in our lives, we needed to be, or we needed to be reminded of God's eternal perspective, what do we do? We ask, right? We run to God in prayer. And this week, we're going to continue that journey with James as he continues to encourage us to respond with God's eternal perspective. James wants us to grow, to endure, and to learn steadfastness. And so this week, the focus is on God's goodness in our trials. We can be confident that our good God gives only good gifts. He is never changing, and we are his through his word work in our hearts. And then next week, we are going to see how we can be sure of God's word and that we are to be swift to hear, to trust, and to obey, and not just to whine and complain in our trials, right? You might remember a scene in The Wizard of Oz. They're walking through the dark forest, and uh, Dorothy the Tin Man and Scarecrow hear some rustling in the bushes around them. And they're, they're a little bit afraid, and Dorothy says, do you suppose we're going to meet any wild animals? And then Scarecrow begins to wonder, I wonder if there's any animals out there that would, uh, would, 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 would eat a uh, straw, right? And then the Tin Man replies, yeah, there are probably lions and tigers and bears out there. And then altogether, nervously, they say, lions and tigers and bears. But what does Dorothy say? Oh, my. And then soon, what are they doing? Skipping through the forest, right? <laughs> And so when I thought of that scene, I thought about how we are on a journey through a dark forest, really, in life, and we're not usually confronted with lions and tigers and bears, but trials and tests and temptations. But oh my, what a precious gift we have from our good, good God. In the midst of these difficulties, Jesus is with us. We have his promise of eternal life, and our God of perfect gifts is our steadfast foundation. So would you pray with me as we dig into James 1, 12 through 18? Lord, you are good, and you give good gifts. Would you come now and give us eyes to see, give us hearts that can understand and have these truths just land on us afresh this morning so that we could be encouraged and also challenged. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so open up your Bibles or your scripture journals that we have there, and we are going to read verse 12, which, as you remember, I called a hinge verse last week because James reflects back on the language of steadfastness and trials from last week's passage, especially verses 2 and 3. So James is going to reassure us here of the reward for the person who remains steadfast under trial. He says, blessed, right? 
Here's that word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Does this word blessed remind you of any of the teachings of Jesus? Think back when he was up on a mountain with his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes. Over and over, Jesus said, blessed are those. And then he gave a list of all those conditions of being blessed. Now, James, what he means here is that this kind of person is living in such a way as to enjoy God's favorable approval. And this is directly related to last week's passage, where we were to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, right? That the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So last week, we did talk about those various trials and how our faith is tested. And we talked about this word steadfast last week and what that means. It means trusting God. It means enduring when those trials come into our life, knowing that God's perspective is that he's refining us. He's growing us. He's wanting to mature us in the trials that we are facing. Now, James says, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, all of our trials in this this life can be summed up probably together with this word, the test, right? The person who has stood the test or endured faithfully. Now, taken out of context, this could sound as if we earn eternal life through our own efforts, our own perseverance. Like back in school, if you remember, you would study really, really hard, right? And you would get the right answers, and then you would get the news from your teacher that you passed the test. That's not the case here, right? But true believers will continue to trust God in the midst of life's storms. They will demonstrate that they truly belong to God by standing firm, remaining steadfast. Those are the ones who are blessed. Now, in a race, it is the one who endures to the end who wins the race, right? Not just the one who starts well. In the same way, those that faithfully run and endure to the end are those that receive eternal life as the victor's crown. Now, this victor's crown was something that was like a Roman wreath that was put on the head of the person who ran the race. This crown, this crown of eternal life, is not going to shrivel up and wither and die like a wreath of flowers, but it's eternal. Matthew 10, says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, our steadfastness is grounded in God's faithfulness to us. Hebrews 10.23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So we hold fast to God in tests, trials, temptations, because he is faithful to help us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, scripture is full of warnings and rewards as a means of motivating us to endure. We might have expected here that James would have written, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who remain steadfast under trial, the ones who persevere. But he doesn't say that. Did you notice what he says? He's promised to those who love him. God gives to those who love him. And where does this come from? Look down at verse 18. This love for God flows from a new heart that is brought forth by the word of truth. This love is evidence of that faith that God has given to us. As James 1.3 puts it, trials are a testing of our faith. So what is another demonstration of that love for God? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John 14.15. God demands that we demonstrate love, but he also saves us and he transforms us into a people whose love for each other points to Jesus. So our lives, transformed by Jesus, will be marked by a loving trust and submission to God and joyful obedience to his commands. And God's promise? Eternal life. And those crowns? In Revelation, we read that believers will one day lay their crowns down at the feet of Jesus. And later, now in verse 17, we see that our steadfastness is due to God's perfect gifts to us. So every trial or test that comes into our lives demands a response on our part. How will we react? Will we count it all joy? Will we plead with God for his wisdom to see difficulties from his perspective? This is the pathway of steadfastness. It was traced out by John Piper in a look at the book episode, and I have a link for you on your sheet, and I'll also send it out in the class email. When we meet a trial, our faith is tested. And if we respond by acknowledging our lack to God, we talked about that last week, and we, and we ask for wisdom, that leads to endurance and steadfastness, and he is faithful to help us. He will hold us fast. Our ongoing endurance makes us steadfast, which over the course of life leads then to that crown of life or eternal life. God will give us everything we need to make it home, all we need. But we could also be tempted to respond in any number of sinful ways when those hard things come into our lives. We could lash out in anger, in frustration, or we could fall into anxiety, unbelieving despair. So what's the difference between being tested and being tempted? You maybe talked about this in your groups this morning around your tables. Now in this next section, we're going to see the devastating, contrasting, deadly pathway. So rather than a blessing, this pathway begins with a warning. 
We see this in the next section here, verses 13 through 15. And we see here the first imperative or the first command in this passage. James warns us not to blame God for temptations. Let's see why not. He says here, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this raises a couple of other questions, doesn't it? Maybe these questions came up in your group. So he says here, let's, let's look back through the passage and see a, one particular word that's used over and over again. What word is that? Tempted, right? Okay, let's, let's underline them. I'm going to pick another color. All right, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the question you might ask is, it says here that God cannot be tempted with evil. But Jesus was tempted, and Jesus was God. So is your mind swirling right now? How do we make sense of that? What kind of temptations were possible or not possible for Jesus when he was facing temptation? It is puzzling because this word right here, temptation, trial, and tests, it's all the same original Greek word. And the word that James uses for trials and tests is the same word that translated temptation here. And it's used in a negative way in verses 13 through 15. So we need God's wisdom to understand this. There's another question that comes up here. If God tempts no one, right, we read this, right? He himself tempts no one. And trials and tests are the same word as temptation, and God tries people or tests people. Like, can you think of someone in the Old Testament that faced a test? Abraham, right? In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham, and he said, offer your son Isaac. That was a test that Abraham faced, right? So, so how does this work? God never tempts anyone, okay? That's a, that's a biblical truth we need to stand on. So if we can't understand it, we need to look into it more and ask God to give us his wisdom. God tempts no one, but he tests all of us. I think all of our trials really could be temptations, right? But there's a difference. One commentator wrote this. What is the relationship between testings without, meaning like out here in our lives, and temptations within? Simply this. If we're not careful, the testings on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God Questioning is love, and testing is will, or resisting is will. Since outward trials may lead to the enticement of sinful attitudes in our hearts, it seems kind of natural at this point in James then that he 
kind of shares his thoughts concerning temptation. So thankfully, we can keep reading in James to try to understand more. We can also think hard, and we can pray. Paul wrote this to Timothy. Think over what I say, for the Lord will grant you understanding in it. All right? In everything. So it's the Lord who gives understanding, but he does it through our God-given thinking, using our minds, reading our Bibles, and the efforts we make through reading, through study, through prayer, to think hard about what the Bible says. And God has also given us wise people, like John Piper, who have good answers, ways that he has thought uh, on how to deal with some of these difficult issues. And I, I gave those links to you on your handout. Here's a quote from him. He said, If I cannot make texts harmonize, I try to let them both stand until someone wiser than I can, even if I must wait for God's final enlightenment in heaven. So I would encourage you with that. All right? So I want to just review some solid biblical truths that are found here in this passage and in other places in scripture that we can stand on, that I want you to take home and just make sure that these are truths that you are affirming. Right? God is sovereign in all situations. That's the first one. Remember that God is sovereign in all situations. God is also sovereign over sins. You looked at this in your lesson. There are many instances of sinful behavior that have taken place throughout the scriptures, and I'm going to send you another link in your class email this week to a, a book that you can download. It's a free PDF called Spectacular Sins, also written by John Piper, that talks through some of these very hard situations that we see in Scripture. Like Joseph, whose brothers sinned against him greatly. And we read in Genesis 50 that, that his brothers intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, so sometimes it's hard to understand how those two things can be held in tension. But God is sovereign. God also ordains trials to refine us. And God is totally sinless, all right? Jesus never crossed that line. He cannot be tempted with evil. And a sinless God is incapable of inciting any of us to sin. God never tempts us. He tempts no one. God never, ever entices us to sin. And so what or who do we blame for temptation? I grew up in the era where there was a TV show that said, the devil made me do it, right? Some of you might remember that one. But I think we don't need to look any farther than our own hearts. Jeremiah 17 tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? And James describes the origin of temptation as, what is he, how does he say it here? He's lured away by his own desire. You see that? Our sinful inclinations of our fallen sinful nature left to itself. So James uses some graphic terms here to describe this indwelling evil desire that we have in our hearts. He uses this word, um, lured and enticed. And literally this means to trap or to bait. Like you would bait a fish with a worm that's hiding the hook, right? Another illustration of this is the way that the 
the Inuit people would kill a wolf that is harming their, you know, their other animals. The wolf is a rather large creature, it weighs a lot, and it would be hard to go out and directly in a head-to-head battle to kill a wolf. And so knowing this, they devised this way. They would take a knife, and they would coat it with blood, and then they would freeze it. And then they would take another coat of blood, and they would freeze it again. And they would keep repeating this until there was a nice thick coat of blood on this knife. And then they would put it into the ground with the blade up, and of course, what would, what would the wolf do? The wolf would sense this, smell it, he would be you know, attracted to it, and the wolf would come and he would begin licking this blade that has the blood on, blood on it. And gradually, the blade would be exposed and it would nick the tongue of the wolf. And as the wolf's tongue was numbed by the cold and you know, was unaware that he was probably being cut, but he would keep licking this knife until he just basically bleeds to death. He just keeps craving this this blood, and he just doesn't realize what's happening. And so within hours, he's laying dead in the snow, and they're, they're done with the wolf. And so like the wolf, I think we can give in to temptation, our craving. When we, when we give in to temptation, our craving can increase. And when we continue to allow ourselves to indulge, it just grips us all the more. And then before we know it, it consumes us. And our friendships could be damaged. Families could be broken. Our testimony spoiled. Satan comes to rob, to kill, and destroy. But James warns us here that specific acts of sin are not the end result. What does he say is the end result? That desire that we talked about here, that desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Death is a final result. And this should remind us of God's warning to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God has laid out two paths in our life, one that is wide and easy, and that is the one that leads to death, and one that is narrow and hard, which leads to eternal life. And Jesus told his disciples that there are very few that choose the correct one that leads to life. So let's look at that pathway. This is the deadly pathway. And again, this is from John Piper's look at the book. And I just put it into a typed up form instead of a written form that he had. So it starts with a trial, again, a temptation. And he made a point to say that this pathway begins with good desires, You know, this desire could be innocent. It could be something neutral. Think of something like hunger. You're hungry. You need to eat to live, right? Being hungry is not bad. Eating is good. It's necessary for our survival. But gluttony crosses that line into sin. Work is good. Work is necessary. God designs work. But when work consumes us to the expense of our family, work can be uh, a sinful thing. Perhaps you've heard the saying, the old saying, you can't help birds flying over your head in the air, but don't let them land and build their nests in your hair. Right? Sam Storms put it this way. He said, the focus of Satan's effort is always the same, to deceive us into believing that the passing pleasures of sin are more satisfying than obedience. 
So in our daily battles with temptation, we may not be able to discern the source. It could be in our hearts, our self, our sinful nature and desires. It could be Satan. It could be the world's influence. The rebellious world can be very alluring to us. But we are called to resist, to flee, to run away from those enticements and the seduction of sin. We're told to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by some of your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, our perfect gift giver, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So that leads to our next section, James 1, 16 through 18. Our God of perfect gifts is our steadfast foundation. So he starts out here saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here we see imperative number two, do not be deceived. Don't believe a lie. Don't go down the wrong pathway. Choose the right path. God does not cause temptation, but instead provides something else. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Anything good, beautiful, and excellent in this world is from God, the creator of all things. God is described here as the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James uses this term father here to magnify God's providential and creative power. Indeed, we've been learning in our sermon series on Genesis that it's God who created the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. Yet, like, unlike such created heavenly bodies, which wax, which wane, which move through the heavens with variation or shadow due to change, God himself is completely reliable. He is unwavering in his goodness, his good giving to us. Everything in creation changes, right? We just have to look at the trees around us this week. But our eternal creator never changes. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is great news for us, the unchangeability, or scholars would say the immutability of God means that he never wavers, not even a hint of change. And when we waver, he doesn't. He remains faithful. So we are all tempted at various times under various trials to give up, to let our circumstances steal our hope. I pray that you will just run to the Lord in prayer for daily strength to trust him, for grace to trust him more, to help you to recall, to remember your hope, to increase your faith, to keep following him. 
And when trials come and we respond in selfish ways or desires that lead to temptation and sin, he is still faithful and he provides for us a way of escape. Maybe he'll lead, a con- lead you by a conviction in your heart. He'll lead you to repentance. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us of our sin and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So run to him, run to him. He is steadfastly faithful. And our unchanging father is in the business of changing us. That is good news. He transforms us by his grace so we become increasingly more like him, more steadfast and more mature. That's the purpose of the trials that we meet. And then finally, Jesus is God's supreme, best, good, and perfect gift sent from heaven for us. He is God's good gift of grace and mercy. He is our ultimate example of steadfastness. As Hebrews tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is where? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His work is finished. We can rest in his finished work for us. The gospel is the greatest news ever, and that is that in Christ, through faith, we are, the language here, we are brought forth or born again into a living hope by his word, by the word of truth. Back in verse 15, James used that image of conception when he was talking about temptation on that deadly pathway. He talked about that kind of conception leading to sin and death, but now he uses that same word image here to explain how God gives us new birth. This is something that is not our doing, but it's a good, good gift of grace from our good, good Father, there are some really beautiful truths here. In Jesus, we receive his genuine faith. We receive his perfect obedience because he perfectly kept all the law. We receive his steadfastness under trial, his standing fast though tempted. He never wavered. His perfect submission to God. Those are gifts that we get in that, what Martin Luther called the great exchange. We get his perfect righteousness, and he takes our sin. So he humbled himself. He intentionally endured the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So rest in the complete and finished work of Jesus on your behalf.
he endured his greatest trial by looking at the joy that was set before him. How do we endure? We endure by looking to Jesus, who is our greatest joy. So in life's journey, through the dark forests, we're not confronted with lions and tigers and bears, but trials and testings and temptations. But oh my, what a precious gift from God we have in the midst of these difficulties. We get Jesus. We get the promise of eternal life. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me pray. Oh, our good, good Father, help us to respond to trials with your eternal perspective, no matter how hard it is. Would you give us more of your grace to grow, to endure, to be steadfast, to learn from you? You are good. You are only good in whatever trials and tests that we face. And Lord, we trust you because you never change. We can stand on your promises. And we are yours. Thank you for making us yours. Thank you for your work in our lives. That is, we can look to you and your finished work on the cross. So thank you, thank you, our good, good Father. Help us to stand now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.